right, let's go before the Lord again. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you because you are worthy of glory. We thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and coming to redeem us by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Thank you for the standing that we have because of him. Thank you for the life that we have because of him. We thank you for all that have gathered around and are gathering around to him by the preaching of the gospel. And we pray that you continue to feed us even by the preaching of the same gospel. May you give us the wisdom to hear and to discard all that which is not true. We pray for grace as I speak and as your people listen. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Second Samuel 21. Second Samuel 21, and we have a lot of scripture to work with. We're going to keep using your Bibles. That's what we do. When <laughs> you have to open those pages of the Bible and not just be doing philosophical preaching. You have to have the Word of God to do the speaking. Second Samuel 21, verse 1 to 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever I say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I'll give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath, that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Ammon and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Basilai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord, So they fell and all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizba, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock 
from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizba, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. So he brought up the sons of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. And that's the word of the Lord. We have two titles. We could expand them. But I'm one title, The Gibeonites Gospel Drama. <laughs> the Gibeonites Gospel Drama. Number two title still connected to that is The Gibeonites Saw David and Christ Connection. The Gibeonites Saw David and Christ Connection. And good morning to one and all who are just joining us. We are in... Second Samuel 21, and we have a very wonderful, beautiful, long message. We'll see how much strength the Lord will give me to expand. But it is one of the messages that it's been a long time that I sit down to work a message from a text that I've never preached from. And the Lord just opens it up. And after that, I start preaching it to Ella. <laughs> and I kept running and running and running and running. You, you go talk to Ella. After. She'll tell you what happened. I was extremely excited. So I hope the Lord will minister the same to you. So as I said earlier, I thought we would end our brief expedition in the book of First Samuel by doing one more gospel message. And there's a lot of detail and a lot of weaving of the details. So the message may end up being long, but that is necessary to help people connect the points. If I leave a lot of things disconnected, sometimes it's hard to connect the points together. Also, I'm not a big fan of doing messages of part 1 to part 15 or part 21 with the same title. I don't like that. That destroys, to me, the beauty of the flow of the stories. I prefer more complete messages than soundbite teaching. I don't like soundbite teaching. I don't like Facebook-type preaching. I need more. I like real food, depth. But that's just me. That's what God does through me. So, as I said, we have a most wonderful gospel message. If the Lord would grant me the ability to communicate it to you and also grant you ability to see it as such. But this is what we have developed so far in the previous messages, which I highly recommend for people to go back and listen 
and re-listen so that they can glean more understanding because my messages are built upon one another. I also have to go and re-listen to the messages. Every message I listen at least three, four, five times. That's how you retain stuff. But this is where we are. David has defeated and killed Goliath and Israel has routed the Philistines and took many spoils of war. And we determined that David was the type of Christ in this conversation. And that made his father Jesse a type of God the Father because it is Jesse who has a shepherd's son who will come down and go to battle with Goliath to kill him and deliver Israel from the arch enemy or arch enemy, the Philistines. My message is done. <laughs> but in the gospel telling from types and shadows, there's not a single type that can exhaust or capture all the details that God was preaching about Christ. And so we find that some characters end up carrying more than one type. Or you can have more than one person being a type of God the Father, of the Son, and even of the Holy Spirit. For instance, King Saul was a type of the law because of his handsomeness, his beauty as it were, and yet he was brutal and oppressive of God's people, Israel. God even said that to them because that's what the law does. The law is righteous, holy, and the commandment good, but it is not for freedom, but for oppression because the power of sin is in the law. So once you have law, you're going to have sin. That's just how it works when you're dealing with those who are in Adam. But Saul also took the picture of God the Father because it is he who has a daughter who has to be given to whomever would kill Goliath, whoever would kill Goliath. So Saul, as a king, has a daughter to give to the man who defeats and kills the Philistines. So the prize then for defeating Goliath and the Philistines was tagged at getting the king's daughter. That was the prize. And that is not some ragged girl on the street. She is royal blood. And she is given away only at the shedding of blood. We are royal by reason of election. Okay? Yes, we are sinners, but we are royal by reason of God's election. And the church is what is in the picture of the daughter of the king, which was won by the death of Christ. And that to say, 
The death of Christ was what God required for the transfer of ownership, for marriage rights to be granted to Christ, to have his church. And so in the book of Acts, Luke says in Acts 20, 28, shepherd the flock of God, the church of God that he purchased with the blood of his own son at the cost of the blood of Christ. That's what happened. And that tells you again that Goliath represented all those things, those issues that stood against you and I as sinners as to destroy us. Goliath carried many hats too. He was a picture of the awesome weight of sin and its effects. Death and condemnation that stared constantly at God's people, leaving them in fear and anguish and hopelessness and left them with no solution on how to deal with these issues of Goliath. Israel did not know how to deal with Goliath. And you and I left to ourselves, we would not know how to deal with the issue of death and condemnation. That is why the price tag for killing Goliath was so high. To be enriched by the king's riches and to have the king's daughter and to have the household of the father of would-be victor over Goliath free in Israel. In other words, the death of Goliath would spell freedom to the house of Jesse because that's the father of David. The house of Jesse would be granted a kind of freedom that nobody else had in Israel because of what he accomplished. And that means the death of Christ would immediately usher in the freedom of God's people like no other people are free before God. And that means their justification from all that was against them to destroy them, their justification from all their sins. It happened, it was decided by the one event when Christ died. So it is not a stretch then to conclude that Christ Jesus justified his father's house because that's what was said in First Samuel 17.25. He justified his father's house when he died because that is what was part of the covenant between him and the king that is God the father before Christ even came. But when it came to the giving of the daughter of the king in 1 Samuel 18, King Saul still had more things to say as if to deny David the price. Because the daughter's king was promised in 1 Samuel 17. And in 1 Samuel 18, it seemed like Saul was beginning to have second thoughts. But this was not about King Saul not honoring his commitment. It was God who was expanding the details 
of the gospel transaction, adding more flesh to the gospel testimony, as it were. And as I am fond of saying, the gospel is a very simple message. I am the king's daughter purchased at the cost of the blood of Christ. That's a complete gospel message. Okay? But it also has a lot of moving parts. And it can get very complex very quickly if you do not understand the fundamentals of it. So we'll revisit some of the previous conversation for us to get our bearings of the story in place. Let's go to First Samuel 18, 17 to 18. First Samuel 18, 17 to 18 says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the lost battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? So Saul wanted to use his daughters to manage the threat, the political threat that David was posing to his throne. So he thought to give his older daughter Merab as a wife but his intention was to have David killed by the hand of the Philistines and God preaching that Christ would die on the cross on account of the daughter of the king, but at the hands of the Philistines and that is sin and its effects. That's what the Philistines are representing. So it was a setup for David. The king is setting up David to die as the death of Christ was also ordained of God. Both were very intentional. That's the point. The death of Christ was intentional. It was ordained of God to happen for Christ to get the daughter. But David had some reservations about his qualifications to be the king's son-in-law. He felt that it was too high a calling for him. But then word came to the king that his other daughter, Michal, loved David. And on that note, we had this from 1 Samuel 18, 22 to 26. Let's go to 1 Samuel 18, 22 to 26. And so commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. That is true of Christ. God had and has delight in Christ. And all of God's servants have delight in Christ. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So, the reservations of David were the language that spoke to the humility of the person of Christ. That is speaking to the humility of Christ. 
23. So Saul's servant spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? See that Christ did not consider it a light thing to be given the responsibility of getting married to the king's daughter, of redeeming the church. That was not a light responsibility. It wasn't given the angels to do. It was given him to do. So in his flesh, he considered himself a poor and lightly esteemed man, which was confirmed by the attitude that the Jews had over him, towards him. And that's speaking to the poverty of Christ, the humiliation of Christ in him taking up human flesh and becoming a servant. And not only that, dying the death of the cross, the shameful death of a criminal on the cross. That is what it means to be a lightly esteemed man, because only lightly esteemed men would die that kind of death. So Christ Jesus would not be driving a Cadillac or Lexus. He would probably catch a bus, public transport, subway train, or just walk on foot as he did in his days in Palestine. He could have done all kinds of things. He could have just been flying. He would just speak and he would be gone to exactly where he wanted to be. But he was walking. Verse 24 and 25 of Fesamo 20, Fesamo 18. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So the king, having heard of the poverty of David, this message was communicated to the king. He said, I do not need any dowry price. I don't need you to send me two million dollars. Rather, just some hundred foreskins of the Philistines will do it. <laughs> And that is to say, the king's daughter would be purchased only at the price of blood. That's the point. The church could only be justified by the shedding of blood of there would be son-in-law of God, that is Christ. Because when David came back from the slaughter of the Philistines, guess what? His hands, how did they circumcise 200 Philistines? His hands were full of blood. Just as Joshua circumcised all the men of Israel by himself, right? As they were just getting ready to cross into the promised land, Joshua did circumcise them. His hands also were full of blood. So these are nail-scarred hands of Christ. So what God required for the salvation of the church was stipulated. And given to Christ to do. 
to go and do some circumcision and shed blood and present it to God for the propitiation of the sins of the people. And so, when David came back from the slaughter of the Philistines, he came and showed the king the 200 foreskins of the Philistines. Here, this verse 26. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. So once the matter of the shedding of blood was spoken to David as the condition for him to get the king's daughter, it pleased him (laughs) and made him happy. Once the death of the cross was mentioned to Christ as the condition of bringing his church, of getting his bride, it pleased him. He was happy. He was agreeable to do things that way. And as he said, the Son of Man goes by the way that was appointed him. The way of death. He knew that he was going to go the way that was appointed him. The way of the shedding of blood. But woe to the man, Judas, by whom he goes. So David went with his men and killed some Philistines and brought 200 foreskins. Two times what the king had asked. And the king's servants did sit down and made a count of them. That is how we know there were 200 of them. (laughs) A double portion for the sake of the bride. And that is it. Christ completely met the requirements for our salvation and there was nothing that is lacking. Saul was satisfied and gave David his daughter Michal to be his wife. And so in like manner, God was satisfied with the blood of Christ. And so he gave Christ his daughter, the church, to be his bride. King Saul was satisfied. But we still had a problem with Merab. Why did Saul give his younger daughter, Michal, to David? Because both were not married at this time. Because we know this from 1 Samuel 18, verse 19. This what 1 Samuel 18, 19 says. But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. That she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. So, David ended up not getting the firstborn or the oldest or the order of the girls. He instead got the second one. Hold on to that important statement. Because we have a lot of details. I kind of explained it in the previous message, but we have a whole buttload of detail to expand on that. 
So we'll go to Second Samuel and connect the pieces because in Second Samuel all the details come together. In Second Samuel twenty one, all the different characters, the people come together in that chapter. So we have been told that in the days of David, when he became king of Israel, there was a great famine. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 21 says, Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Kibbanites. Okay. So there was a famine when David was king over Judah and Israel. In the Old Testament, when it says Israel, is the ten northern tribes. Judah is the southern tribe. So David was king over Israel and Judah. And David, as a prophet, inquired of the Lord. And the Lord told him that the famine had a cause. It had come on account of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. What did Saul do? He killed the Gibeonites. And God was not happy with it. But there's no account recorded for us about the actual incident of the killing of the Gibeonites by Saul. But all that matters is that God said it happened. (laughs) God knows a lot of things that are not recorded. He said, oh, it happened. I know about it. Verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David called the Gibeonite elders and spoke to them about the matter. But we are told that the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but were a remnant of the Amorites, Gentiles of Canaan. But the children of Israel had sworn to protect them. And Saul had violated that covenant by killing some of them. He committed genocide of a people that Israel should have protected. Let's go develop the story of the Gibeonites. And then connect the pieces. Joshua 9. This is where the oath, the covenant was made between the Gibeonites and Israel. Joshua 9, 1 to 15. And I'm going to work gospel through it because I have a lot of detail today. Hear this. Joshua says, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on the side of the Jordan, on this side of the Jordan, in the hills, and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, 
heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So Israel has crossed the Jordan into the territories of Canaan, and everyone there was scared to death. They have had what God had done and was doing through Israel, conquering and killing people and dispossessing them of their stuff. So they thought to unite and fight against Joshua and Israel. So they formed an alliance, their own version of NATO, a defense pact of the day. <laughs> Verse 3 to 5, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and piked sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. So the Gibeonites crafted some wonderful presentation of their condition so as to deceive Israel into making a peace deal with them. And five things came to their mind to do to bring a package. They packaged themselves in old and tattered things. That's how they determined to enter into a peace deal with Joshua. Old sex, old wineskins that are torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, old bread, their provision was dry and moldy. Verse 6, And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. They said, We have come from a faraway country. Just look at us. Look at how miserable we are. Look at our condition. We are stinking. <laughs> Look at our clothes. They're old. They're torn. Look to our provisions. Yeah? Look to how old our bread is. It's all moldy. Make a covenant with us so as to not destroy us. We seek peace with you and we will surrender according to your terms. Just do not destroy us. Verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? What is your identity and where do you come from? Show us your driver's license. So everyone has an identity. 
an identity in Adam. And if they are redeemed, they have an identity with Christ. They have assumed the identity of Christ. And the Gibeonites are coming because they want a new identity. They want to be identified with Israel. They want to be identified with Joshua. They want to associate themselves with God's people and the God of Israel. See where this is going? Verse 9. So they say to him, to the question of who are you and where do you come from? So they say to him, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. We have heard, we have come from a faraway country because we have heard of what the Lord did. We have come because of the name of the Lord. We have come because of the name of the Lord and what he did, we heard of what he did in Egypt. How he set his people free by the death of the firstborn of Egypt, even the son of Pharaoh. How he set free his people by the Passover lamb. How he set his people free by the parting of the Red Sea. That's what we had. That's the gospel that we had. So we have come <laughs> because of the name of the Lord, because of what he did. But the salvation gospel preaching is a declaration of what the God of Israel did. In the salvation of his people is already done he delivered his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He delivered his people from himself. And so we have come from a very far country. Your servants have come. What is that saying? It is saying this is the spiritual condition of every sinner when Christ found them. They had on odd sex, odd garments of Adam. That is no righteousness. Odd food that is good for nothing, that is without Christ. But the real food has to come from heaven. Everything else that is not Christ is just some odd, moldy food. Odd wineskins that are torn and tattered and cannot hold the new wine of Christ and had on patched sandals on their feet that could not protect them from the thorns. And that means not walking right with God, not walking according to God's righteousness. Remember Joshua was a type of Christ or is a type of Christ because it is he who took over Israel and 
put them into the promised land he took over from Moses. So Joshua is a type of Christ. And the Gibeonites come to talk to Joshua. <laughs> okay, about the matter of their salvation from the God of Israel. And they're seeking to be spared from death. So every sinner who comes to Christ has to bring the testimony of their ruggedness, their shabbiness, the shabbiness of the Gibeonites, and saying, we are nothing, and we have nothing. We stink. We have no good clothes for righteousness. We have no good food, but we seek peace on your terms. Lest we die. We come in this condition, but we seek peace on your terms. The prodigal son also went to a far away country and led a riotous living as a sinner until he came to the end of himself or until God brought him to the end of himself. And brought him to his senses. That is repentance. The prodigal son was son. Even in the days of his rebellion. He was a son. Because sonship cannot be lost. He was just lost. He even tried to lose, lose his own sonship. When he came back to the father. He said, oh, I am not worthy to be called your son. I want to lose my sonship. Can you make me as one of your hired servants? And the father says, no, I'm not going to take that speech. I'm not going to receive that presentation. Sonship cannot be lost. Hear this, Luke 15. Let's go to Luke 15. 13 to 16. And not many days after the younger son has come to the father and said, give me a portion of the inheritance that belongs to me. And verse 18 says, and not many days after that conversation with the father, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. A faraway country is a place that breeds severe famine. And it will strip you of all that you have. But only the elect will begin to feel in want and suffer the kind of hunger that leads them back to the Father in repentance. But not before they have devised some other means to try and save themselves as did the prodigal son. Here, verse 15. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that faraway country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. 
the citizen of that far away country that will send you into his fields to work for your survival and to feed swine is the law because he has jurisdiction in that far away country. The law has no dignity for a sinner. The son was not working that kind of work when he was back with his father. The law will get you feeding this one. Verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the paws that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. You're not going to get any help from the law. And when you are in this distant country, anything goes to try and find satisfaction, to try and find food, to find clothing, a covering. I'm sure when the prodigal son came to his senses, his provisions and testimony were as the Gibeonites had shed. They were in the same condition. Odd clothes. Because no one gave him anything. So he had on odd clothes. Odd sandals on his feet. If he still had any. And he surely smelled bad. Because no one is going to feed swine for an occupation and not smell awful. You're going to smell bad. Because swine stink. They do. So the prodigal son sought to go back and seek peace with the father in that tattered state. As the Gibeonites came to Joshua to seek peace with the God of Israel in the testimony of what they presented to Joshua. They lied, but they did not lie. They lied about their physical condition, but they did not lie about their spiritual condition. God caused them to do this because it was God's script. God was preaching. Here, Joshua 9, 11. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, these are the Gibeonites speaking, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see they are torn, and these our garments and our sandals have become old. Because of the very long journey. That is true, beloved. (laughs) If you shall seek to meet God in peace. By way of your own righteousness. That is how long the journey is. That's how distant the journey is. To try and bridge the distance between where you stand in your flesh and making it to the level of Christ's righteousness. Yeah? 
the gap between your righteousness and his righteousness is too big to cover. And that makes it for a very long journey. And whatever good thing you may start with at the very beginning will all be rotten by the time you reach to God. Not worthy of presentation. And that is what many churches are teaching people to do. To pack their fresh provisions. They give you and I said, oh, our bread was hot. It was fresh. But by the time that we got here, it was all moldy. The works of their own hands, people are being encouraged to pack them. And for a moment, for now, they appear to be fresh bread. But not for this distant journey. Yes, your righteousness in the flesh may be packed fresh. But by the time that you reach God, it will be old and tattered because of sin. Sin is the issue. Sin is what is eating in our way. They shall all be old and will profit you nothing. So what is the solution for this kind of journey? Because everyone is on a journey. In the matter of human existence, everyone is on a journey and people are packing all kinds of things for this journey. But what many don't realize is that it's a, it is a very distant journey and there's no human provision that can last them all the way to meet with God in peace. Psalm 2 verse 12 has a solution. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's the solution for the long journey. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And in Luke 14, hear the testimony of the son. Luke 14, 31 to 33. The Lord said. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off or a great distance off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Gibeonites have sent a delegation to Joshua according to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. The Gibeonites have sent a delegation to Joshua because war is about to happen. And they ask for conditions of peace. Thus, to interpret verse 33 of Luke 14 correctly in the context, which says, so whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. People will then be saying, you have to bring all your money to the church and give it to Jesus. 
Is that what Jesus is talking about? <laughs> to forsake all that you have means to acknowledge the terms of peace as God has given them in Christ. To acknowledge that you have in the flesh nothing to give to God for salvation. You are forsaking everything that you may have considered to be what would recommend you to God. You are forsaking that and saying that is not enough to give me the peace that I need with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Because there's a war situation. Understand the issue and come and agree with the terms of peace that have been given you by the one who has a stronger army. And Jesus is saying, guess what? I have the stronger army. I am the man, I am the king who has the 10,000 army. Okay? You and I, no, Jesus is the one who has the 20,000. That's the greater number. So you can't go and fight against him. So surrender. That's what Jesus is saying. Old food, old and torn clothes, old wineskins that cannot hold up in the matter of salvation. So you have to hear the terms of peace. Verse 14 and 15 of Second Samuel 21. No, of Joshua 9. Verse 14 and 15 of Joshua 9. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. See what happened. On account of that, Joshua made peace with the Gibeonites based on their beautiful and faithful gospel presentation. <laughs> Again, know that God is behind all this. Otherwise, he would have stopped it. He would have spoken to Joshua and said, no, 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 don't go into a peace deal with these people. So Joshua made a covenant with them to let them live and that is what Christ has done with all such as we are, the Gibeonites. We are the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are the Gentiles. Gentile sinners who are far off, who had odd clothes on, and they're coming and seeking peace with the God of Israel. So he made a covenant of peace with them, as Christ made a covenant of peace with us. So the Gibeonites were now tethered to be the servants of God to serve the God of Israel because of this oath that Joshua made with them. Because when Joshua discovered that they were lying, he was not happy in his flesh, of course. But he did not cancel. He did not set aside the oath. He took them for God's servants. If you go and read the end of Joshua 9, that's what he did. He took them 
to be the servants of God, to become hewers of wood and drawers of water in service to the worship of the God of Israel. He had them working to help with the ministry of the tabernacle, drawing water and firewood for the sacrifices and all that. That's the work of the Gibeonites. And that is what we have become. Because of Christ, we have been served to the service of God. So all that we do as God's people, we are bought by Christ is to honor God. But somewhere, sometime during the reign of Saul, he had slaughtered many of them, of the Gibeonites. And God speaking to David on account of the great famine, he said it was because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house that he killed the Gibeonites and dishonored the covenant that had been ratified between them and Joshua. No matter the false impressions that the Gibeonites had made, that, that was not an issue for God. The issue was the violation of the covenant. So when the name of God was invoked, then it was binding as a peace treaty. But Saul had to leave his testimony also as a picture of the law. The law and its house and its covenant of Mount Sinai is a bloodthirsty covenant. That's what God is saying. <laughs> Hear this. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and gods could take away sin. So year after year, blood ran like a river. Blood ran like, literally, like, literally. They offered thousands of animal sacrifices. Because the people never stopped sinning. And the sacrifices never perfected anyone. So they never stopped offering them. And that is what it means when God says to the house of Saul. The house of Saul was a bloodthirsty house. It kept shedding blood and yet made nothing perfect. The house of Saul represented the law and what it does to sinners. Yeah? Also, as we saw with Jonathan, Jonathan is also in the testimony of Saul, but as I said, he also has his own testimony. 
that will build in some other message. But we know this about Jonathan. He gave up his throne to David. As the heir apparent, Jonathan was the firstborn of Saul and he was the one to assume the reign of Israel after his father. But he came and gave it to David this way. First Samuel 18 verse 4. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt to say he was giving his throne to David. He was acknowledging that David was going to be the new king of Israel to say the end of the covenant of the law is Christ through David is getting ready to take the throne away from Saul, to take the throne away from the law. But the law is what was ruling before Christ came. So anybody that David comes and takes over from is a picture of the throne of the law. The testament of the law is not only found through Levi. Levi is the ultimate picture of the law. But not always. David in the house of Judah is the ultimate picture of Christ. But not always. The other tribes also carry the picture of Christ to some level. Okay? So here this, again, in Hebrews 10, 8 to 9. In the matter of the testimony of Saul and his son Jonathan and what they represented. Hebrews 10, 8 to 9, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, the continuous shedding of blood. God did not have desire in that, which were offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first, the throne of Saul. The first, the covenant of the law. Must be taken away before David goes on the throne. It must be taken away. The first, the law, must be taken away that Christ may establish the second. They cannot run together. Because only one sits on the throne. One has to be taken away. So that's what David is doing. He is taking away the throne of the law through Saul and he is establishing the throne of Christ. Verse 3 of Second Samuel 21. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The matter of famine that God has caused because of the sin of Saul needs atonement. It needs satisfaction. The matter of the famine that sin has caused 
lack of righteousness needs atonement. And these have been caused by the law. And the atonement is needed, is required, is demanded that the inheritance of the Lord may be blessed. That's what David said. But how and with what? Verse 4. And the Gibeonites said to him, to David, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. The Gibeonites say, No silver or gold from Saul or his house, or shall you kill any random man in Israel for this cause? Don't just go grab someone and kill them. The matter of sin cannot be atoned for by silver or gold or by the death of just any other ordinary person. The Gibeonites say, they do not accept that kind of gospel testimony. So apparently, Saul, as we learned, also did not require a dowry price in the manner of silver or gold or livestock for his daughter to be married to David. And the Gibeonites come and say, we also don't accept any silver or gold. For our redemption. And Christ comes and says, What shall a man give in exchange for their soul? What shall a man give for their own atonement from the famine that has come? That's what Christ is saying. Not silver, not gold. What shall you give in exchange of your soul from sin and death? Seeing that your clothes are old and dirty. What shall you give seeing that your shoes are torn and tattered and your wineskins cannot hold the new wine? What shall you give? So an exchange has to happen. The matter of the gospel is speaking to an exchange that God required. So either that exchange already happened and God accepted it or he did not. He doesn't do multiple exchanges. It's the one exchange. If that requirement is met, then the exchange is done. That's what happened on the cross. Christ met the requirement for the exchange of condemnation and justification. Those are the only two states there is to exchange. Condemnation and justification. So if Christ has shown up and he has the payment, then justification has happened. It happened when he died. So David said, so he said, whatever you say, I'll do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I'll give them. The Gibeonites want atonement from one who was a descendant of Saul. 
and they want seven of them to be delivered to death. Not by stoning, but by hanging. And they say before the Lord, we're going to hang them before the Lord. They give you an answer. And they're confident that if this happens, then atonement will happen. We want the descendants of Saul to be hung. We want the end of the testimony of Saul. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So who would be delivered to death of Saul's descendants was in the hands of David as the new king to determine. But he did not deliver Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, whom he had made a covenant, an oath between them. They had made a covenant that David, should David ever become king of Israel, he would spare the house of Jonathan from destruction. Let's hear when the covenant was made. First Samuel 20. First Samuel 20, 14 to 16. This is David and Jonathan. And Jonathan is speaking from verse 14. And he shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So David, unlike Saul before him, must keep the oath to Jonathan. As Joshua had kept the oath to the Gibeonites. See that the matter at hand arose the matter at hand between the Gibeonites and Israel and the famine arose due to the violation of a covenant. And that is a serious matter that God is teaching that God does not violate his covenant of salvation to his people. And so those who say salvation can be lost belong to the house of Saul, not of Christ. They do not understand what matters they loudly proclaim. Because Christ will not violate the covenant. He must fulfill. He must honor every jot and tittle of it. But the covenant of the law as represented by Saul will violate you because of sin. It will. And it will condemn you. So Mephibosheth, the disabled son of Jonathan, cannot be put to death on account of the covenant that David made with his father. And that's the only way that you're going to be <laughs> right before God. 
is because of Christ's faithfulness to the covenant. God's faithfulness to the covenant, not your faithfulness to Christ. Not what you know about Christ. That has nothing to do with the covenant. It's about Christ's commitment to honor the covenant that he made. After all, you're just as disabled as Mephibosheth was, the son of... I'm really itching to preach it, but not today. Okay? So the son of Jonathan was spared. He lived because of the covenant, because of the oath with David. The matter of salvation is between Christ and the Father. It's between him and the covenant that they made. It's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your sin. Oh, I'm sinning sinning this, I'm doing that. That conversation is not the conversation of the gospel. Ultimately, you are running away from the pillars of what makes the gospel the gospel. Okay? Verse 8 of 2 Samuel 21. So the king took Ammon and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Basilai, the Meolathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. We have some things to qualify here. Saul also had another son by the name of Mephibosheth. So this is not the son of Jonathan. This is an uncle of the other Mephibosheth. Also the Texas. Five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom he gave to Adriel, the son of Basilai. No, it was not Michal. Cow. It was not Michal, but Merab, who was given to Adriel. The scribes did make a mistake there. They did. Why? Two reasons. Let's go to Second Samuel six twenty three. Second Samuel six twenty three says. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Michal never had any children of her own. She did not have any children of her own. Also, in 1 Samuel 18, we're very clearly told that the second daughter is the one who was given to David. And the older daughter is she who was given to Adriel. So it can't be Michal. Michal could not have had children because she was married to David. She could not have had children with the son of Basilai. Okay? So there's some typo, some error that happened there with the scribes. And I just wanted to point that to you. I think they meant the older daughter of Saul. But hear this again. In verse 8 and 9 of 2 Samuel 18, 2 Samuel 21. So the king took Ammoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, 
and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul. I corrected that. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Basilai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So David took two surviving sons of Saul that he had with his concubine, Rizbah, and five sons of Merab, and those would be the grandsons of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Basilai. And the Gibeonites hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So there was a crucifixion of the seven on the hill to the Lord. And you may not like biblical numerology, but sometimes it is hard to ignore. <laughs> because I think God gives it for a reason. Number seven is the number of perfection. Just as we hear this of Job when he made the sacrifice that made atonement for his friends. Let's go to Job 42 verse 8. Job 42 verse 8 says, God speaking to Job's friends, says, Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Seven bulls and seven lambs for atonement for the sins of Job's friends. And God says, you go to my servant Job. You go to Christ. That is where the atonement of your sin is going to happen. Because I have accepted him, not you. I have accepted Christ to be your representative, to be your high priest, to be your sacrifice, to be your righteousness. And so we have been accepted in the beloved, but go to him. Seven rams, seven bulls. Yeah? So seven sons of Saul for atonement on a hill before the Lord. So those are pictures of Christ and of Mount Calvary making atonement for sin. But in this matter, what, what was God preaching about Christ? And the law, because you rarely can talk about Jesus and not have some reference to the law. It's impossible. Remember, Saul was a picture of the law. Bloodthirsty, as God said. His older daughter, Merab, was married to Adriel, the son of Basilai. God wants you to know that the older daughter of Saul was married to this guy, son called Basilai. Who is Basilai? It was the Basilai who was a servant of David. Much older than David, but faithful to David, and also very rich. That is why Adriel 
had been able to get Merab, because Merab was the daughter of the king also. So she had been married to money. Basla had money, Edjo had money. Let me show you the text. Let's go to 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel 19, beginning at verse 31. We'll go to 39, 31 to 39. The text says, And Basli the Giladite came down from Raglim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. This is King David. David is running away from Absalom. Absalom also wants the throne of the father. He's plotting a coup against his father. Now, Absalom has been killed. At this point. And David is going back to Jerusalem to assume the throne again. Now, Basli, verse 32, was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mehanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Basli, Come across with me. And I'll provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Basilai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? How long have I to live that I should go with the second reign of the king? With the second reign of Christ? Because Christ was reigning before. And then he came in the flesh, and after the resurrection, he has to go back on the throne, so he's going back to the second reign. And the question is being asked, this is Basilai in the picture. And the king is saying, let's go back to Jerusalem together. And Basilai says, how long have I to live? I am today eight years old. Can I discern between good and bad can your servant test what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a feather burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimam. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good for you. And the king answered, Chimam shall cross over with me and I'll do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I'll do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Basilai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. We have a full message on Basilai. When Christ, when David goes back to Jerusalem the second time, with all those who were with him, because he ran away with all those who were with him, the text says, then all the people went over the Jordan when the king crossed over. <laughs> all the people went over into glory with Christ when the king crossed over they were in union with the king they were with the king 
Why did you say this? Basilai was a faithful servant of David. Basilai was an aged man, 80 years old, and had faithfully provided the king with provisions. He was rich and was the father-in-law to Merab, Saul's daughter. And that means the five grandsons that were offered to be killed were his also. So Basilai was a picture of the law again. A rich and faithful servant to the king, but who does not cross over back to serve the king once the king goes back to his throne in Jerusalem. (laughs) He does not cross over back to serve the king. Contrary to what a lot of preachers in the confessions of faith are saying about the law. He does not go back. What did he say to David? Verse 33. And the king said to Basilai, Come across with me and I'll provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. Does the law cross over into the new covenant? That's the point. That's the question. Let us hear Basilai answer. Verse 34. But Basilai said to the king, How long have I to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I'm coming to the end of myself. I am today 80 years old. Can I descend between the good and the bad? How long have I to live? How long has the covenant of the law to live in the advent of Christ? Because once Christ shows up, it means the end of the covenant of the law. And that's why Jesus said to the disciples or some person who said they were marveling and admiring the temple, the stones of the temple, and said, look how beautiful these stones are. And Jesus said, oh, every one of them is going to be torn down. The beautiful stones of the temple were the stones of the law. And Jesus says, oh, the law is going to come to an end. We're going to take it down. And yes, people say, yeah, the law is beautiful and what? But Jesus says, no, I'm taking it down. How long has the covenant of the Lord to live in the advent of Christ? Basilai says, can your servant test what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a feather burden to my Lord the King if Basilai crosses into the New Testament, he says he will become a burden to the king and his subjects. If I cross over into the New Testament, I'll be a burden. If the law crosses into grace, if it crosses into the message of God's free and sovereign grace, we have a burden. We have the book of Galatians We have the book of Hebrews also. Every time you mix law and grace, you're going to cause trouble. You're going to cause a burden on those people. So what did Basila suggest should be done? Verse 37. Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city. 
near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimam. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do it for him what seems good to you. Basilai, the law cannot cross over. He says, let me turn back and die. Not and live in my own city. He says, and die in my own city. And be buried near the grave of my parents. He must die. The law must come to an end. But much of the church does not get it. They'll say, oh, that's antinomianism. If anyone says that, especially a preacher, to me, they don't know anything about the gospel. I don't, I'm not even arguing with them anymore. It's a waste of time. Unless God opens their mind to sit. It's not an antinomian idea. You're telling the truth on Christ. Basilai must die. He must be buried. He cannot cross over. But Basilai says to the king, but I will not leave you without a faithful servant to minister to your needs and the needs of your people. Here is Chimham. Let him cross over with you and Chimham would be what? It's the Holy Spirit who crosses over as the new servant of Christ into the New Testament to guide God's people. And that is to say, the Holy Spirit is the believer's Rule of life in the new covenant, it cannot be the law. I don't care how people want to say, oh, you're an antinomian. I'll never agree with that. There is a new servant. Even Jesus said what? I will send you another comforter. Not Moses. I will send you another comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit. That's Chimham. He is the one who crosses over into the New Testament. And I said all that to say, the atonement for the famine that has a reason because of the violation of the covenant with the Gibeonites has to be made by the seven sons of Saul, five of which were grandsons of Basilai, through his son who was married to Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom we identified as the picture of the old covenant of the law. So Merab is a picture of the law. Saul is a picture of the law. Basilai is a picture of the law. <laughs> Why? Because she was not married to David. The older daughter of Saul was not married to David. Because David, Christ, is not going to be married to the law. He's going to be married to the new, to the younger, who is the church. Okay? Also, Merab is a type of the law. Why? Because all her five children are going to be given to death. Romans 7 says what? The law bears fruit and what? It bears fruit in its womb for death. So all the children of Merab have to die. They are offered. They bear fruit unto death. So she is a picture of the covenant of the law. As was her father, her father-in-law, 
That's why his father-in-law, <laughs> they are in the same camp. What is the overall point? The point is that the one who makes atonement, he has to be one who was raised under the law. And has to be perfect. Remember, the Gibeon said, give us seven of those who were raised under the law. We want one person who is perfect, who was raised under the law, to be offered to the Lord that we may have atonement. So Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christ had to be raised under the law. But perfect. That's why God says it's going to be seven sons as a picture of Christ who were raised under the testimony of the law. When they have been offered, then you have atonement and the land shall be healed. So it took many years between the slaughter of the Gibeonites and the atonement. The atonement for sin happens in the fullness of time, in the appointed time, by the appointed person, in the appointed place, by one who was raised, one who was born and raised under the law, as the sons and grandsons of Saul were born and raised under pictures of the law, and also through the law because they were Israelites. Through Saul, as one of the testimony, as I said, through their mother Merab, who is a picture of the old covenant, through Basilai, who is a picture of the law too, and looking to the atonement of Christ that happened in the fullness of God's time. In the fullness of God's time. Second Samuel 21. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. These seven sons and grandsons of Saul were publicly executed by the Gibeonites at the beginning of barley harvest. That is early spring. As Christ was publicly executed to make atonement for God's case that he had come on his people because of the law. Publicly executed to make atonement. But the mother of Saul's two sons, Rizba, refused to take them down and bury them. She refused to take them down. She wept for them continually. Until the coming of the drought-breaking rains. Remember what has happened because of the famine. There's not been much rain, not been much harvest for three years. I want you to see that. The, the bodies remained hanged. They remained suspended. 
until it rained. And that to say what? God's curse on Israel, or God's curse that was on the land of Israel, had now been imputed, was now resting on the executed sons of Saul. Because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So these who were hanged now carried the curse that was on the land. It had been imputed to them. Remember, they had not done it themselves. They were not guilty of it because they'd done it. It had been imputed to them. And so Christ was hanging and was guilty of the curse of our sin, not because he'd done it himself, but because God had imputed our sin to him. So Christ Jesus carried our curse. There was a total transfer of the curse to him. Here, Second Samuel 21.10. Now Rizba, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for her herself, on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. So Rispa is guarding these bodies day and night. She does not want them to suffer the kind of corruption from wild Animals, birds, and wild beasts. These are the pictures of Christ. The Holy One shall not suffer corruption. She is guarding them day and night. She's not, the, these bodies cannot be eaten by the birds of the air. The body of Christ was not eaten by the birds of the air. She is guarding them day and night. But there was the coming of the rain. There was the coming of the rain. God says, from the beginning of harvest until the rains poured, until the late rains poured on them from heaven. What does it mean? Until the rain poured on them. It meant the curse that was on these bodies had ended. And the corpses could be taken down and be buried. So when the Christ died and was taken down, means what? The curse had been removed. Oh, you're going to hear this. When the Holy Spirit, who is the picture of the rain from heaven, when he had been poured on the church from heaven, on Pentecost. What did that mean because of the rain? It meant the curse had ended. Christ had removed the curse of the law. If you want to write anything of everything that I've said today, you have to write this. Okay? But you have to understand this. Pentecost was God saying, the curse has been removed. Because the Holy Spirit 
is he who was in the picture of the rain from heaven. Is the letter rain. So when it has come, because remember the issue, remember the context. There's famine, which means there's no rain. So when you see the rain come, it means the curse has been removed. So the giving of the Holy Spirit means the curse has been removed from you. It is not you knowing things about Christ that removes the curse. It is the pouring of the rain. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit. So Christ had removed the curse of the law. He had justified his people from the curse that came by way of what Saul did, what the law did. So the giving of the Holy Spirit from heaven is God's testimony to say salvation accomplished, to say reconciliation accomplished, healing of the land, to say righteousness has been given. The giving of the Holy Spirit is testimony of that. The curse has been removed. This aspect, I've never had anybody preach it or sin it. The giving of the Holy Spirit is God declaring a complete justification, the removal of the curse in the immediate aftermath of the death of Christ. So how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're still not under condemnation? Because you have the Holy Spirit, the later rain that came, and it testifies of the very same truth. Here this second Samuel 21 verse 14. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zela in the tomb of Kish his father. So they performed all that the king commanded and after that God heeded the prayer for the land. And that you say, when David saw the devotion of Rizba, he went and took the bonds of Saul and Jonathan who had been taken by the Philistines and they were making a mess of them and gave them a dignified burial. And together with what had happened with the seven sons of Saul, this is Saul's house that is being buried. Saul's house has to be buried. The curse has to be buried. The law has to come to, to the end. And then after that it happened, God heeded the prayer for the land. And that is to say, God was satisfied with the offering of the sons of Saul and the burial of Saul and Jonathan's bones in the context of the story. God's ultimate satisfaction is in Christ himself. Yes, God was satisfied with the burial of the covenant of the law, that bloodthirsty covenant. He was satisfied with it. He could not bless as long as that is covenant was standing. That's the book of Hebrews. The way to the Holy of Holies was not yet open as long as the old covenant stood. So what happened to it? It had to be buried. 
So you bury the covenant of the law. That the land may be healed. That the church may be blessed. That we may be married to Christ. So God demonstrated his satisfaction to what happened to the sons of Saul by causing the letter rain to fall from heaven. He caused the Holy Spirit to fall upon his purchased possession. In other words, the death of Christ made peace between us and God. Yeah? It healed the inheritance of God's people. It ended the drought and the famine. It justified us from the curse of the law and from all manner of sin. That is what Christ accomplished. There's no way that you can say you're preaching the gospel and then dilly-dally around what Christ accomplished. There's no way. He caused the rain to fall. That's what he accomplished. Because he justified his people. That is the story of those who have come from a faraway country. The Gibeonites. And their worn out clothes. See, all this is happening because of the Gibeonites. Yeah? Because the Gibeonites are going to be restored into the assembly of the Israelites. Because of this atonement. The Gibeonites, worn out clothes, old patched shoes, old food, patched wineskins. But God has made peace with us through the covenant with Joshua, with Christ Jesus. And yes, we shall live. And we live because in him we live. Our life is hidden in him. Because he lives. That's gospel testimony. God be praised for teaching and revealing the secrets of his son. Okay? Amen. Good people. <laughs> That's God, God teaching and preaching Christ from the text of the Old Testament. These preachers will say, oh yeah, there's no gospel in the Old Testament. They don't know the gospel. If you know the gospel, you're going to find it. It's there. Christ has not left us without a witness of himself in both the old and the new. Because they both testify of the one person and the one message. Okay? God be praised. Thank you.